Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's take a look at the economy, shall we? We have the consumer very strong. We had retail sales. Looks like the holiday retail sales are going to come in about 3.5% growth year over year. That looks very strong for the U.S. consumer. And we've seen that before with strong job numbers, strong retail sales. Let's get a sense of whether that will continue to push us in 2020. Andrew Hollenhorst, he's the chief U.S. economist for City. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He just did a stint on Bloomberg Television, so we are working Andrew hard today. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. What is your thought for 2020? I mean, the consumer and the U.S. economy seem to be kind of chugging along here. Yeah, I think it still continues to power ahead. I mean, we've had this really positive story around what's going on with jobs, what's going on with wages, that's supporting incomes and in turn supporting spending. So, you know, historically low unemployment rate. These are all the kind of elements that you need for a strong consumer economy. Now, more concerned about what's going on in other places in the economy, but the consumer, if you just focus on that, very, very strong. What can break the streak? So a few things that we were worried about in 2019 that you would still think about going into 2021 is, do you get a big correction in risk assets? Now, we don't think that will happen, but if you were to get a big drop, then we saw that at the end of 2018 going into 2019 and consumers pulled back. So if we get a big drop in equity markets, that's something that could slow down consumption. The other thing that could, of course, always change is the positives that we're talking about. If those jobs numbers start to slow down and there was a time in 2019 when it looked like maybe they were, now as we're going into 2020, it actually looks like they're holding up quite well. Um, but so either this kind of pullback and sentiment among consumers, that's something that we're watching, or do you just get a fundamental slowing in job growth? So I listened to you on Bloomberg Television earlier today, and you said that impeachment wasn't necessarily something that would upend the markets, but that the election rhetoric could. And I'm wondering, how does that play into this kind of healthy economy that we're seeing right now? Yeah, so these are the things that are much harder to kind of forecast or get your hands around as an economist. Um, so like I was saying, you have very different visions that are being presented for the U.S. economy. Of course, that's something that investors have to take into account. Of course, that's something that economists have to take into account. Um, it still looks like the modal outcome, the most likely outcome is that, well, the U.S. economy kind of continues along on its current trajectory, which is this, you know, roughly 2% growth. But I, I think the point I was making and we continue to make is that this will be an important theme in 2020. Investors watching what's going on with both the politics between between parties and within the parties, um, trying to figure out what this really means for the economy. So, Andrew, one of the, you know that one third of the economy that is manufacturing business investment that is weak. Uh, we've got the manufacturing sector contracting now for several months in a row. Do we just kind of ignore that because the consumer is still so strong? Yeah, so definitely don't ignore it. I think that is the key downside risk that we want to continue watching. Um, some positive stories there. One is it looks like, and I think it's too early to say anything more than it looks like, but it looks like globally maybe the weak manufacturing story has bottomed a little bit. You see globally that data starting to turn over. And if that continues, um, then that would be a positive dynamic for the U.S. Also, you have these idiosyncratic US-specific issues. You had an auto worker strike, and you had the grounding of certain aircraft. If production picks up as we head into 2020 around those two stories, that could be positive for manufacturing, but particularly on the airplane story, that keeps getting pushed further and further out, so. Yeah, I don't know how we, 
maybe, I guess my question to you is, how do you kind of account for that? How do economists account for that? Because I think about the supply chain for Boeing, it just kind of stretches coast to coast and, you know, a whole host of industries. Yeah, it's it's definitely a macroeconomically significant issue. This is not, you know, some small company-specific issue. It really matters for the U.S. economy. Um, and that supply chain is really important. So when, you know, we're talking about a shutdown of production in January, um, but then does the supply chain actually continue to produce? If the supply chain continues producing during that time, then you're not producing final completed aircraft, but you still are keeping those workers employed in the supply chain. You're pro- pro- producing parts that ultimately go into those final aircraft. So that can kind of support demand while we wait for a full restarting of production, which should happen at some point. Something we talk a lot about at this table is the impact of automation on jobs. Obviously, the manufacturing sector has seen a lot of this. Uh, It's floating into a lot of other sectors. I cover the banks. We see thousands of job cuts around the world, partially in the name of automation. When you're thinking of automation, how do you factor this into your longer-term outlook on uh, what happens with jobs and what happens with growth. Yeah, so this matters so much. And you have to be careful because there have been many times in history when we've looked at technological advances and said, this is the end of labor. This is the end of workers. There's going to be no role for humans. Um, and there always has been. But what we need to be very careful about with this transition to more automation is that those opportunities are created for the existing workforce. So we know, as you were mentioning, there are certain industries where it's just not going to make sense for humans to be doing the jobs that they used to be doing in those industries. Um, But are we creating new opportunities? Are we creating new engines of growth? So are maybe, we? maybe you don't. I, it's not clear yet. It's not clear yet that we are. And I think I think that 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 is the the kind of you know difficulty of navigating this transition. So maybe you have less traditional manufacturing jobs. We should have more jobs around things like three D printing. Are we really seeing those jobs come through? Um, that's what we're looking for, and that would be a ultimately positive story for the economy if we get there. So Andrew, we've uh, you know the trade has been such a big big issue for 2019 it's kind of faded over the last couple of weeks a little bit at least you know in terms of the news flow and the tweet flow how do you kind of gauge the trade uncertainty into your economic forecast for 2020 yeah so any uncertainty and in particular uncertainty around trade is something that's going to tend to hold back investment people are going to want to wait they're going to want to see what the actual outcome is um, that's true around trade it's true around politics brexit everything um It does seem that at least in a short-term sense, we've had a decrease in uncertainty. So there's still massive uncertainty about where this story goes over the next five years, over the next 10 years. But as you look out over the next six months, it seems like there are at least the contours of a phase one deal that have been agreed to. It looks like these agricultural exports are gonna be restarted. Um, So all of that is short-term positive and that should help to unleash some of the pent-up investment that was waiting for some short-term resolution of uncertainty. Now, do you have a long-term resolution of uncertainty where you can think about making plans for the next five years, the next 10 years? I think that's a lot less clear. Can I ask you also about the Federal Reserve? Because I think you have a more balanced view than a lot of people who believe, yes, this is definitely QE, and no, this is absolutely not. Uh, but can you explain to us how much is the, is the Fed propping up the economy more than people realize right now? So there is a very important sense in which the Fed is the, supporting the economy, and that's, that's largely through 
low interest rates and they've achieved low long-term interest rates, both through their bond purchase programs, uh, which I, I would say what they're doing right now, I would not call it QE. I think many in the market <laughs> will see it as QE and we can come back to that in a second. Um, but low long-term rates, which is partly these QE programs, but partly just the fact that the Fed has held rates relatively low. It looks like the top of this interest rate hiking cycle is gonna be sub 3%. And we're thinking about staying around these levels or maybe in the future uh, going down from these levels. So that's gonna keep rates low. That's gonna support the economy. In terms of this specific pro program, at the end of the day, they're buying T-bills. That's a three-month, six-month liability of the U.S. government that pays interest. They take yep. those T-bills out of supply and they add reserves, which are an overnight interest-paying liability of the U.S. government. So it's not clear that that's really doing much. Okay, so we're not going to call it QE at this moment. Andrew Holland-Horst, thanks so much for joining us. Andrew is the chief uh, U.S. economist for City. We appreciate him coming here to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us his thoughts for the economy. Again, as we just kind of take a look at the most recent data point, call it holiday retail sales. Pretty strong, suggesting once again that the consumer is pretty strong, which contends once again that the U.S. economy remains on pretty fair footing. We continue to see really disturbing images coming from hong kong that uh, protests there just so no signs of winding down the persistence i think is really uh, amazing to a lot of us who are watching these issues you get a, the latest here uh, we welcome karen lee she is bloomberg news a great china government editor uh, she joins us on the phone uh, uh, karen thanks so much for joining us give us the latest of what is happening in hong kong right now well, there are protests scheduled for tonight um, in an area called Sha Tin, which has seen some of the more violent protests over the past six months. And then again over the weekend in an area near the Chinese border. Um, and this is leading up to a major rally that's been planned for New Year's Day, organized by the Civil Human Rights Front, which is the organization that's helmed some of the biggest peaceful protests since these demonstrations against China's grip began in June. So we're going to be watching over the next few days to see what the turnout's like, um, how big the clashes between protesters and police get, if there are clashes at all, and to see if we can draw any signals from all of this, especially the turnout on January 1st, as to how much uh, momentum this movement sustains going into 2020. So, Karen, just give us a sense, an updated view of kind of what the protesters are really protesting for right now. It's been months and months and months. What kind of change are they really looking for right now? Yeah, well, their demands have shifted a lot over the past six months. And this, of course, began um, as blowback against a really unpopular extradition law that would have allowed um, transfers to mainland China. And it morphed pretty quickly into this wider movement against Beijing's grip. And protesters' demands in that time, uh, since that time have changed. Right now, one of the biggest demands, if not the biggest, is an independent inquiry into aggressive behavior by police and their conduct in dispersing these protests, going back to some of those images you were talking about with these big clouds of tear gas hovering over these areas of Hong Kong where you never thought you would see tear gas over the city center, um, and again, even on Christmas Eve over a popular shopping area in front of the Peninsula Hotel, which is one of the most venerated hotels here um, during this what has been a major shopping season for this economy that so runs on tourism and retail. 
Um, so we're going to be looking at the new year, really, not only to see whether this sustains its momentum, but whether the demands shift again um, and what they shift to. Can you give us a sense of the tone here? Because over the holiday, hundreds were arrested. I'm looking at headlines now. Can, how much is this really escalating? Um, you know, this has really become the new normal in a way for this city, at least for parts of it. Um, and what we saw on, on Christmas Eve was not shocking to those of us who've been watching it for a while. Um, we've become quite used to seeing these kind of clashes scattered around town, especially in the area where they happened. Um, and we've seen more violence than we saw on Christmas Eve. I mean, we've been seeing occasional live ammunition. Um, we've seen rubber bullets fired from pretty close range. Um, college campuses turn into what look like battlegrounds. Um, so really the context for Christmas Eve's importance was more that it happened on the holiday and that it happened in an area that in years past um, would have been full of tourists and holiday shoppers. Um, and this year it was a bit of a different picture. And I think for a lot of people it really served to show what's happened to the city over the past year and the kind of impact that all of this has had on tourism and retail, um, both of which have taken a massive hit. So. Um, we're going to we're going to see what happens now on New Year's Day, but really the city bracing for a much bigger protest um, in the next few days. Well, that was what I was going to ask next. What can we expect on January first? Um, well, this protest is being organized by the Civil Human Rights Front. It is the organization that has brought millions of people out onto the street um, at various points throughout all of this. They organized the huge marches earlier in the summer that really kicked this movement off and got it in the global headlines. Um, and they're still waiting for a police permit to march. Um, they don't have that yet, but even if they don't, we think that people will still probably come out and they'll protest illegally and there will be more arrests. Um, so we're going to be looking to see what the turnout is, and they they've they generally get much bigger turnout um, than other protests organized by other um, either opposition groups or, or activists. So, um, and this is going to happen on a day when people are off here. Um, people might want to send a signal that they do intend to fight into 2020. And if they want to do that, this is going to be a good day to do it. So it really will be um, a signal to us of what we might expect going into the new year and the first few months of the new year. Hey, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that on-the-spot reporting uh, from Hong Kong. Karen Lee, Bloomberg News, Greater China Government Editor. To get a sense of kind of what we should be thinking about as we think about oil for 2020, we welcome Kevin Book, Clearview Energy Partners Head of Research. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. So as we take a look at crude around the world for 2020, is it fair to say this is just a clean proxy for what the market thinks is going to happen to global trade and trade tensions between the U.S. and China? Well, they're surely related, but we're also in a seasonal second half of the year uh, demand peak. So when you think about what you're coming up to in the first quarter and the second quarter of 2020, you're going to have the seasonal troughs. Uh, so this is as strong, really, as things could look right now, given those underlying seasonal demand pulls. On the trade side, you know, the trade war, such as it is with China, is far from over. It's probably about 25% over, and we don't know how long it's going to stay over. So uh, there's still some looming uncertainty that could tamp down industrial demand, 
that industrial demand is, in the end, crude demand. So we may not yet see a rebound into the into the first half of next year, the same way we've seen it in markets and in, in, in equity markets so far. Right. So a lot of our colleagues over at Markets Live believe that too much good news has already been priced into the oil markets, and that that could lead to a significant correction. Is that what you believe? Well, yeah, we do see a you know a Brent range in the, in the five handles, probably the fifty five uh, thereabouts, fifty five to sixty range for for next year. Uh, which is below where we are now, and uh, it's based on a number of things, including significant supply coming on stream in 2020. The Permian has a very long skid mark. You know, when, you, when we talk over and over again about shale correcting, it is not synthetic spare capacity. It is not like OPEC where they can turn it on and turn it off inside of 90 days. We're talking about nine months before things usually respond to price, and the bullishness you're seeing in price today is preserving production tomorrow. So uh, that sets up some of the weakness we're talking about in tandem with the production outside of the U.S. So, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about OPEC or OPEC Plus. Give us a sense of kind of how you think OPEC is behaving right now. Are, are people cooperating? Um, I think about Russia there. So give us a sense of just on the supply side, how is OPEC and, and OPEC Plus kind of perf- uh, performing right now? You know, I think the optics still stay ahead of actuals in a lot of ways. The idea that the group is still together may be more reassuring to the bulls in the markets than the the reality of things playing out. In excluding Russian condensate from the volume constraints, essentially freed up barrels that Russia can bring to market. And liquids are not perfectly interchangeable, but when we count barrels, we count all liquids. And so that doesn't necessarily read as, as bullish as the readout from the meeting might have suggested. Going forward, the cohesion of the group really reflects the, the willingness and ability of the kingdom to keep doing the heavy lifting, which they have been doing. Uh, but when we look at the neutral zone coming on stream, uh, that's you know somewhere between 300 and 500,000 barrels per day coming up in the, in the next six to, to nine months probably. And we're going to be looking at that pressuring crude to the downside unless the kingdom does more work. Uh, so what do we expect? Well, Kingdom's got a vested interest, and they're in it to win it right now. Uh, but in the end, if, if it looks like there's too much defection from other players, watch out below. The big oil story of 2019 was obviously Aramco, right? Nobody would stop talking about it from everywhere from everywhere in the world, really. Can you talk to us a little bit about international demand for this IPO? Obviously, it was very weak moving forward, but can we expect a little bit more love from international investors in 2020? Uh, that's not really our area of expertise. What we can say with some, some comfort is that the, you know, the circumscribing the, the, the IPO to non-U.S. nexus markets has a lot more to do not with uh, trying to get a, a good financial result for the kingdom or to meet uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman's $2 trillion target. had a lot to do with the risk of, of sanctions and pressure here in the U.S. under the Justice uh, Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act uh, and potentially under a NOPEC bill, which would allow the, the sanctions uh, or trade, uh, or, sorry, Sherman antitrust pressure against the, the producers group. So uh, looking outside the U.S., created a, a limited demand in its own way, looking outside Western markets for the same reason. Uh, beyond that, you know, if they do a further offering, a secondary offering, uh, they might look broader, but not while the overhang here in the U.S. interdicts their easy access to, to markets like ours. So, Kevin, taking a look at the shale patch in the U.S., we hear a lot about, really in the last year plus, about kind of the financial precarious, the precarious financial position a lot of the operators 
there. Are we going to see in 2020 maybe some of the bigger energy players go in there and try to consolidate something that we're seeing in the Permian? Um, or how do you see that playing out? Consolidation is happening, but it's not happening with the, the rapidity, I think, that might be expected. Some of this has to do with, again, the lifeline that you get from a boost in prices here in 4Q. Some of it also has to do with the, the questions about buyers and the assets. They may not want all the assets, and the sellers may not be willing to go to the rock bar bottom that clears the market just yet. The infusion of, of debt capital to, to the players that need it the most being constrained is a catalyst for further sales, uh, further consolidation, but at the right price. Uh, part of the problem with the vacillation in the market that we're seeing, you know, 20% up or down, does a lot to create uncertainty about whether or not there's going to be some bottom feeding happening. Speaking of bottom, bottom feeding, that's what I was going to ask. Who are the buyers for all of these assets? We had Sam Zell here just a couple months ago saying that he was looking at assets himself as the prices start to drop. Are there other Sam Zells in the world that are also looking? I, we know private equity has been pretty constrained. Yeah, so the class of buyer that I think you're going to get is shifting a little bit in character. It's true that you've seen a lot of private private equity sponsorship putting up capital for the last five, six years, and that's done a lot to sustain the boom in the Permian. Now what I think you're going to get is capital discipline from the majors that are looking for opportunity, uh, as well as some of the investors who are going to have a different set of, of parameters around the returns that they want to get. That doesn't necessarily mean that when you get an acquisition, you get production. You might get acquisition, consolidation, and rationalization. And that slows the growth of the Permian, which, of course, is what the people who are putting the money into the region are hoping for. They want returns on capital because they want supply constrained to the highest performing, lowest cost basis assets. Kevin, let's just take a look. Uh, one of the things I just wanted to chat about real quickly is Venezuela. We haven't talked about that in a while, but that, you know, is a kind of a wild card out there. How do you, as you think about 2020 and supply coming onto the market, what is, how are you discounting what's going on in Venezuela from a supply perspective? Well, the biggest perturbation of the year for Venezuela was the loss of heavy supply to the market, and it really did a lot to, to close the light-heavy spread. And for refiners that were configured for high complexity to make use of those cheaper heavy crudes and make uh, bigger margins, that was bad news. Finding alternative heavy hasn't gone so well because there's other sources of medium and heavy in the world similarly constrained. So it's not like the market isn't eager for some Venezuelan crude to come back on. But the politics of the situation aren't going in that direction. Right now, if you think about the politics of the situation, Venezuela is in many ways a proxy for Cuba in the, in the Trump administration. For them, the idea that they could, could sell Florida on being tough on, on communism in Cuba by being tough on Venezuela has been pretty persuasive. And so the, the idea that there's some sort of workout bargain or there's some sort of U.S. brokered way that Venezuelan crude comes back to the market doesn't look so strong. The next leg down, though, seems also less likely because what that involves is essentially going after Russia, Rosneft, which is doing the, 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 the marketing and, and the, essentially the bringing to market of the Venezuelan crude in place of markets being open in the U.S. and other Western destinations. And that is a mess. To go after Rosneft is to, yep. to go after the world, uh, and that sanction probably doesn't happen anytime soon. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insights uh, on the global energy market. Uh, Kevin Book is Clearview Energy Partners Head of Research, giving us his thoughts on uh, the global crude uh, market. We are talking big tech here. Again, let's frame 2019. We came into the year thinking, 
Boy, a lot of these big unicorn deals that we've been reading about were going to come public. Everybody was going to make money, public shareholders, the private equity folks, and the investment bankers. It was going to be great. It turned out to be a little bit different. And I think one of the big takeaways for me as we think about the Ubers and Lyfts and Smile Directs and WeWorks is that mismatch between private market valuations and public market valuations. It's greater than I've ever seen it in my career. One of the issues I want to, and I want to get to this with David Kirkpatrick, he's Tech Omni CEO and founder. Uh, he knows uh, everything about technology, wrote a great seminal book on Facebook back in the day. So David, my sense is, again, thinking about that mismatch between the private market and the public market, a lot of blame is going to SoftBank and that you know $100 billion vision fund that invested in a lot of these companies. Do you think that's a fair criticism of SoftBank? Well, thanks, Paul. Um, yes, I do, in fact. Um, but it's not just the Vision Fund. It's SoftBank's own direct investing as well as the investment they did through their Vision Fund. And in many cases, they really almost literally threw money at companies that they saw as such dramatic disruptors that, that they might alter entire industries. And I think we now can see they clearly didn't do enough analysis in many instances before they made those seemingly rash decisions. On the other hand, you know, the thing that has also characterized this recent period and still characterizes it is it's hard to get returns uh, in a lot of places where people used to expect them. All, you know, stock markets have gone up great, but people like to have other ways of making money. And, it, you know, one of the reasons why the whole unicorn phenomenon and the soft bank phenomenon, phenomenon emerged the way they did is that large institutional investors have been looking for more uh, dramatic ways to leverage large amounts of money. And that's a global phenomenon. And SoftBank took advantage of that in a very canny way. But I think in retrospect, they, they blundered. So something interesting about the SoftBank investment in WeWork still is that, if I'm not mistaken, CFIUS has not yet approved it. That's the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States that is supposed to be keeping out for these kinds of things. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, Sifius, you've done a lot of reporting on this, Sonali, so you're an expert. But I, I, I've been impressed, actually, by Sifius's role in general uh, during the Trump presidency. It, it has gotten much more actively engaged with this question of what is and is good, what is and is not good for the U.S. economy. Um, when it comes to a lot of these consumer tech companies, you know, Cepheus generally has not spent tons of time on that. But yes, maybe maybe they will get involved retroactively in some of these deals. But in reality, where they're really getting super active is around Huawei and uh, other kinds of Chinese American deals um, and Russian in investments in U.S. companies, um, and they're going to be more and more involved. One of the things I think is going to be a trend for 2020, in fact. <clears throat> is government in the U.S. and globally is just getting more savvy about tech, finally. And I think that's going to change the way markets behave. I think it's going to change how investors behave, and it's going to change the way we think about tech. David, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to get your perspective on this, given that you followed uh, technology in the Valley for such a long time. I think really historically, from my experience, the U.S. regulators have taken a generally a light touch to technology regulation. Which, of course, we've seen the European regulators, you know, going back to the Microsoft days, you know, taking a much heavier touch. But that seems to be changing. I'm not sure. We've seen a bunch of tech CEOs hauled in front of Congress this year. Do you think that's a blip or is that a trend that's emerging? 
Oh, totally a massive trend that began very clearly in 2019 and will continue. Because one of the other great, great, gigantic trends of not good necessarily, but gigantic trends of 2019 was the suspicions we all developed about giant tech platforms went to a whole new level of gravity and concern on a global basis. And governments all over the world are really much more involved in scrutinizing particularly the largest global tech companies, all of which are American. Um, and, and those companies, for the most part, have not really responded sufficiently to the concerns that the public and government have. So those concerns are only going to grow. So another thing about big tech, you know, Scott Galloway was really looking at Facebook, really critical of how big it's grown and its responsibility in terms of data and privacy. Scott Galloway, NYU professor. NYU professor Scott Galloway. Now he's turned his sights to Twitter and whether CEO Jack Dorsey should be its CEO. David, I'm really curious about your opinion here. Yeah, I'm I'm a... I'm a fan of Scott Galloway in general, and I think he's done a really uh, important service in the very close scrutiny he's given to the tech giants, uh, even for the last three or four years. But I, I don't agree with him about Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a whole different kind of company, really, than than Facebook in particular, which it's compared to so often. It's it's really tiny in comparison, and it really it's, its significance is very very different. I also think Jack Dorsey is a very different kind of leader than Mark Zuckerberg, far more thoughtful, far more responsible in many ways. And, you know, I, I, I don't really think that there's any reason why Jack Dorsey shouldn't be, remain a CEO of Twitter if he wants to. Interesting. The one I guess on the extreme, David, as we think about the growing regulatory um, overhang, if you will, of big U.S. tech. And again, I agree with you. That was a, a big, big theme emerging in 2019. On the far extreme, we've even heard calls to break up big tech. Do you think that's even on the menu at any point in the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think it is on the menu. I, I have my reservations about it, both from a practical point of view and, and even whether it's a good idea. And I, I kind of go back and forth on that. It's certainly a, a massive trend. You know, president, can, presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren and even plenty of people inside the Trump administration and the president himself have occasionally made noises about that. So, you know, I, I honestly think that the companies are really scared about it. And it, you sh- when you look at their behavior vis-a-vis government, you should ask yourself, are they doing whatever they're doing because they don't want to be broken up? And I think many things they've done recently are explained that way. So it's a, a, you know, when Elizabeth Warren talks about it, she talks about things like going back and peeling double click out of Google. You know, that happened 15 years ago. So I I don't think that's pragmatic or, or likely. But but the concerns about these platforms are so huge. You mentioned I wrote a book about Facebook, and it was generally positive quite a few years ago. The, the perception that I have, the world has, about what Facebook is doing and how it behaves and the effect it has on society has changed so completely. You know, we have real cause to be worried about the power that a small number of companies that are basically making non-transparent decisions about our lives, are, are, are that, that phenomenon is really worrisome, and we're going to see reactions against it continually going forward. Let's be honest, though. Even with all these concerns, the big keep getting 
bigger. Google looking yeah. to buy Fitbit. Are we going to see more deals in 2020 among the big tech companies, even in light of some of this um, rhetoric from Elizabeth Warren and others? I do think we will. I mean, partly because these companies are just so wealthy and they have so much cash um, that, you know, they, they, they feel the mandate to grow. Look, Wall Street is telling these companies, keep growing. Their stocks are doing great, mo- almost without exception, these giant companies in the last few months. So uh, that is what their fundamental priority remains. But they have to be super careful about their moves. And I think when they make acquisitions, internally, they're going to evaluate them much more carefully for the perception that they will create. Um, Google buying Fitbit, I think, is you know, relatively innocuous for, from the standpoint of its policy implications. All these companies really want to get into the healthcare area, so that's one place you will see acquisitions. And I think health technology is actually going to be one of the great trends of the whole decade that we're entering into. David, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I got a million other questions uh, I have for you, but we'll catch up with you soon. David Kirkpatrick, Tech Omni CEO and founder, talking to us about all things tech. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.